Let me say I am glad that Joe and Shay have the opportunity to have uh, time with their family during this spring break, but I'm very happy also to be serving uh, alongside Jonah this morning. I've said this uh, many times. Uh, I'll say it again publicly. He's certainly one of the most remarkable godly young men I've ever known. And so I hope that you all appreciate him. Uh, there's few like him anywhere. So this morning, I'm happy to be serving right alongside my fellow pastor. And if you would, open up your Bibles to Revelation 19. Revelation 19. This, tonight is actually a meaningful night for me on some level. Uh, Jonah mentioned it already. But I have, for the last two and a half years, actually Sherry and I together have opened up our home for the last two and a half years, and I've had the privilege of studying, teaching, and discussing every single verse in the book of Revelation. And tonight, after two and a half years, uh, we finish. We will finish uh, Revelation uh, 22, and by the way... The previous six months prior to Revelation as a run-up, we studied, taught Second Peter and Jude. So I have spent the last three years of my life uh, pretty consistently studying, teaching on the return of the Lord Jesus Christ and the implications of his return. So when Joe graciously asked me to preach, take a wild guess as to what I wanted to preach on. If you guessed the return of the king, uh, you would be right. And so this morning, we're going to uh, look at Revelation 19, 11 to 16. And you might be thinking to yourself, now Dave, three years studying and teaching on the return of Christ, is there even that much material on the return? And you're going to preach twice, and then you're going to open up Revelation 22. Is there even enough information? So I want to begin by giving you a little biblical data, or if you're into statistics, that kind of thing, I want to show you something. Because I want to, you to see how important this is on the pages of Scripture. In the Old Testament, there are a total of 1,527 passages alone that directly reference the second coming of Christ. In the New Testament, uh, there are approximately 8,000 verses total. And 330 or about one out of every 25 verses directly refers to the second coming of Jesus Christ. In fact, next to the subject of faith, no subject is more often mentioned than the return of Christ. I'm going to say that again. In Scripture, next to the subject of faith, no subject is more often mentioned than the return of Jesus Christ. For every time the first coming of Christ is mentioned in Scripture, 
The second coming is referred to eight times. One time to eight times. And the Lord himself refers to his coming 21 times. And over 50 times in the New Testament, we're exhorted to be ready for that great event. It is a major theme throughout the pages of Scripture. Clearly, because there is so much biblical testimony, we can be certain that Jesus Christ is going to come again. The promise of God demands it. God, who cannot lie, promised that the Messiah would come, that he would establish a kingdom, he would have a throne, and that throne would be in Jerusalem, and from that throne he would rule the world. So let's look at the text together, beginning in verse 11. Please read along, follow along with me. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So our text really breaks into three parts. A very simple outline, but obviously very powerful, very profound. We're going to look at the return of the king. We're going to look at the army of the king, and then we're going to look at the reign of the king. Let's look then, first of all, at verses 11 to 13 and look at the return of King Jesus, the return of the conquering king. Look at verse 11 with me. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Here we see a, a glorious glimpse of heaven, a glorious vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's a very different vision than the one we saw in chapter 1 of Revelation when we studied that. In fact, I remember uh, actually preaching when we just started this journey. This was all the way back in the Hotel 116. I, I preached on the vision of Christ in chapter 1. This is a different vision of him. Uh, in chapter 1, he's ministering in his church. Here, he is obviously coming in fiery, flaming vengeance. He is coming with a sword of judgment. He's coming with blood-splattered garments. Uh, this is the point of redemptive history of the return of Jesus Christ. This is the fulfillment of the promise Jesus himself made with his own lips in Matthew chapter 24, verse 27. So as the scene unfolds, our eyes are fixed 
on this majestic, regal, mighty rider. Heaven is open to us, and we see the white horse, and on the white horse we see the rider. And I just want to talk about some of the details because they're important. Jesus, the one who ascended into heaven, as recorded in Acts chapter 1, the one who is currently seated at the Father's right hand, is now coming back. He's coming to receive the kingdom that his Father had promised to him, the kingdom which he is entitled, riding no longer as he rode in his earthly life, but now coming as a conqueror and follow me in typical fashion of a Roman triumphal procession. And I want to mention something to you all at this point. So stay with me. Are you with me? I want you to hear this. Please listen carefully. Capture this because it's very important. What you have in this imagery of this vision is a mingling of symbol and reality. And you have to comprehend that or you won't comprehend this. There is language here that is an expression of reality, and there is language here that is an expression of symbol. And of course, that symbol points to reality. And people ask, uh, does this mean that there are horses in heaven? Uh, answer, uh, no more than it means that when Jesus comes, he's actually going to have dangling off his head a bunch of crowns. Uh, or that when he returns, he's actually going to have sticking out of his mouth uh, between his lips an actual sword. Uh, it, and then no more in the way uh, him coming uh, with a myriad of his saints riding white horses. Listen, there's no indication, nothing anywhere in Scripture that horses get glorified that horses get eternally glorified and go to heaven there is listen a mixture here of symbol and reality this is not necessarily actual reality any more than jesus christ when he sets up his kingdom is going to roam the earth with a huge iron stick mashing people's skulls with it and yet it says he will rule with a rod of iron you have to understand that the symbolic language here expresses reality, but in itself is symbolic of that reality. And the symbol here, the majestic symbol here that we saw in this first verse is a Roman conqueror who's coming back in a triumphal procession. He's coming uh, to a great battle to triumph, to enter into his glory of that triumph. Uh, and this is something that the initial readers, I want you to get the context, would have understood. In the Roman Empire, a general would ride into battle on a white war horse. He would come to his battle with his battle garb on a large white horse, leading his troops into this battle, as it were, and then they would engage in war. And when the war was over, he would ride back to Rome, up the center of the city on this 
glorious white horse as a victory procession. He would enter his, uh, into his glory. So the imagery is very important. It's very vivid. Uh, you don't look at this and say, well, that's great, a white horse. Um, he's riding a white horse. What does that mean? No, you don't want to miss the symbolism, which points to a reality. It's interesting to me, uh, this week I actually had to attend uh, for work a, a medical provider conference, and as it were, I ended up uh, in a hotel room that uh, looked uh, was directly across the street, looked directly down at the entrance of Caesar's Palace. And um, if you know uh, Caesar's Palace, it's trying to, they're trying to recreate Rome and the Roman Empire. And as I sat there even uh, a few times uh, kind of going through my sermon prep, I thought it was uh, uh, a strange twist that here I was looking down. And at the, at the entrance of Caesar's Palace is this massive white war horse. And it's there for a reason. It's a symbolic of victory and triumph. And I thought to myself, I wonder how many people pull up to Caesar's palace and then come out a few days later feeling uh, victorious <laughs> or uh, they feel uh, guilty and ashamed and defeated. But uh, that's a side note. But the point, what's the point I'm trying to make? I'm trying to make the point that the white horse is symbolic of triumph of victory, the war horse. Uh, John sees Jesus no longer as a lamb, no longer as he was portrayed in, in Zechariah 9, 9, uh, coming in humility, riding on the colt, uh, the foal of a donkey. But in this case, he sees him as conqueror. And white is not only the color of war chargers, uh, in the ancient Roman world, but it's a symbol of purity. It's a symbol of spotlessness, of unblemished holy power. And in fact, everything in that image is in contrast to the humble foal of a donkey, which Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Now he comes as the conqueror. Now he comes as the warrior king. Now he comes to destroy the wicked to overthrow the Antichrist, to bind Satan, take control of the earth and the universe and establish himself as King of kings and Lord of lords. The horses are symbolic. The sword out of his mouth is symbolic. The rod of iron is symbolic. The crowns are symbolic. But the coming is reality. And so he comes... Scripture tells us he comes in glory. We read that in Matthew 24, Matthew 25. In Revelation 1-7, it says, When he comes, every eye will see him. The blazing glory of Jesus Christ will come with such a startling reality that everyone on the face of the earth will see him. And he will come not only in glory, not only visibly, but he will come with vengeance to judge and make war. Now, at this point, I just want to digress for a brief moment and just talk to you about something you need to keep in mind because it's so little taught. There is nothing in this scenario that matches the descriptions of the rapture of the church in the New Testament. 
There are two scriptures in the New Testament that refer to the catching away of the church or the rapture that you may have heard of it. One is John 14, the other is 1 Thessalonians 4. Both of those describe the coming of the Lord for the church, the coming of the Lord for his beloved. In John 14, Jesus said, when I go away, I will prepare a place for you and I will come again to receive you unto myself that where I am, you may be also. That was not a warning. That was a promise. That was not an event to be feared. That was an event to be anticipated. I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm going to come and get you. I'm going to gather you up and we're going to be together. That's very important because whatever the catching of a way of believers is, whatever the rapture is, it's something we are to long for, look for, love, anticipate, hope for, because he's going to come and he's going to come and take us to a place that he's prepared for us. Where is Jesus now? Well, we could say he's not only in heaven, and what is he doing in heaven? Well, one of the things he's doing is preparing a place for us in the Father's house. But when he comes to judge, he comes to the earth, he stays on the earth, and he sets up his kingdom here. The rapture is a very different event. It's a catching away of the church into heavenly homes that have been prepared for believers. And that's why it's very difficult to see the rapture and the second coming as the same event. At the rapture, furthermore, Christ doesn't come to earth he meets us in the air he comes all the way to the earth in the second coming and we follow him in the rapture he comes and meets the saints in the air and takes them to heaven in the second coming he comes all the way to the earth with the saints he establishes his kingdom on earth at the rapture there is no judgment there's nothing in the text in John 14, 1 Thessalonians 4 to speak of judgment, but here in what we just read in Revelation 19 is all judgment. The rapture is a time of blessing. This is a time of cursing. Uh, there will be blessing for the godly when he comes back, but the emphasis here is on judgment, and no such emphasis is made in regard to the rapture. At the rapture, as I said, he meets his own in the air, he sets his foot on the Mount of Olives, according to Zechariah 14. He puts his feet right down on the Mount of Olives, splits the Mount of Olives, creates a valley in which he judges the world and establishes his kingdom. Furthermore, the event of the second coming of Jesus Christ is preceded by blackness, the darkened sun, the darkened moon, skies falling everywhere, smoke fills the universe, lightning and blinding glory introduce the coming of Jesus Christ. Such aspects are not associated with his coming for the saints in John 14, 1 Thessalonians 4. And that's why we believe that the coming of the church, which we call the rapture, the catching away, is a different event that precedes the coming of Christ in judgment to set up his kingdom. We teach at Redemption Hill Bible Church that the rapture and the second coming are not the same event. And I just want to make sure you understand that. And so we say at Redemption Hill, we believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. That is, Jesus catches away his own before 
breaking out in terrible judgments during the tribulation period, that wrath of seven years. He's already raptured saints to set up and to reign with him in the kingdom. And so here we are then. Jesus is coming in judgment fury in Revelation 19. He's coming as conqueror. Now let's look again at verse 11 with with me. Go back to verse 11 and see more about the return. It says that he who sat upon the white horse, the symbol of, again, conquering, the symbol of holy, pure power, is called, look at it, faithful and true. He is called faithful and true. Really, there couldn't be a more appropriate name for the Lord Jesus Christ. He is faithful to his promises. He is faithful to whatever he promises, and he speaks only the truth. Faithful and true is going to return. In the third chapter of Revelation, the seventh verse, he is described as he is holy, he who is true. And why is he called faithful and true? Because he's keeping his word, right? He promised he would come. He promised he would come, and he comes. He is faithful to keep his word. He is faithful. He is faithfulness and truth personified. And by the way, his name is certainly in vivid contrast to the unfaithfulness and the lying hypocrisy of Satan. Jesus always tells the truth because he is the God who cannot lie. He is always the faithful and true one. He is always to keep his word. He promised he would come. He comes because he is faithful and true. And I'm sure today there are many who would be happy to sort out the teachings of Jesus that they like, uh, the the teachings of Jesus that fit their sentiments. And happily, they would reject his solemn judgments and promises of fury and vengeance and wrath. But follow me. He is just as faithful and just as true to those promises as he is to the promises of salvation and grace and mercy. He is faithful and true. And you're never going to see it more clearly than when he returns because he will be faithful and true to his promise to bring the righteous into a kingdom and to destroy the wicked. Faithful to his righteous character, faithful to his holy nature, true to his word, he comes, and when he comes, he has to do what he promised to do, what righteousness demands he do, he judges. Once he came as Savior, he comes again as judge. When he was here the first time, wicked men judged him. When he comes the second time, he will judge wicked men. He will not only be the judge, by the way, he will also be the executioner. In Isaiah chapter 11, which is, by the way, a parallel passage, we don't have time to go there, but you can write it down. It says this in Isaiah 11, He treads the winepress of the wrath of God alone, alone. Look, 
Angels are not executioners. Uh, angels are just simply the mop-up crew, really. They are the sorting crew, uh, according to Matthew 13. But he alone treads the winepress. He alone has the power to execute. He alone has the power to bring final fury in the wrath of God. There was a time in his first coming when he was brought before Pilate and Herod and Caiaphas and Annas and brought before the crowd and they screamed for his blood and they judged him unrighteously. And there will be a day when he comes back and he will judge the world in righteousness. It will be different when Jesus comes, different than it was the first time. And you know, there's a warning of that in the 17th chapter of Acts when it says in verse 31, quote, He has fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom He has appointed. What man? The man He raised from the dead. The man, Jesus Christ. So He's coming back to judge. So He comes in fury to judge the world and then this most amazing statement, I want you to look down at it, the very end of verse 11, makes war and wages war, to make war. He comes as a warrior king. He comes to fight. Back in chapter 2, verse 16 of Revelation, amazingly, astoundingly, it is recorded that he said to the church of Pergamos, I'm coming to you quickly and I'll make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He's a warrior against the ungodly and against the unbelieving and against the wicked and the sinful. He will come back and he will make war. It's really a different Jesus than we're used to seeing, obviously. We're used to seeing him ministering to the needy, feeding the hungry, healing the sick, casting out demons, giving peace to troubled hearts, and we're used to hearing him lovingly invite those with heavy burdens to come to him with rest. But that's not how it's going to be when he comes back. He now comes on a war mission. He comes to search and destroy. By the way, this is not a new character of God, in case you're like, wow, Dave, I didn't think God was like this. Nor is it a different personality of the God of Scripture. You remember at the Red Sea, back in Exodus 15.3, when Jehovah destroyed Pharaoh and his host, Israel said, quote, The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is a warrior. It's an amazing title of God, man of war. It's an amazing title for the Son of God, but Redemption Hill, it is true. The Lord is a man of war. In righteousness, he judges and makes war. That is what it says. He who for long centuries has endured the scoffings patiently, the insults, the evil of men who have contemplated Calvary and as it were spit on him, who displayed human hatred and contempt through millennia have rejected the peace that he made through the blood of the cross. They're now going to find him a warrior king. But there's not going to be much fighting on their part. The end will come in a split second. You see, heaven cannot 
be at peace with sin. God is pure of eyes and to behold evil, cannot look upon iniquity. God's patience has an end. He will not always tolerate iniquity. Justice cannot always live with injustice. Truth cannot always live with lies. Rebellion cannot always go on. And when sin is finally and fully unstoppable and man is incurable, then will come destruction. And mercy abused will bring the executioner. Here says one writer, quote, comes the sword of insulted majesty, the wrath of rejected grace. Furthermore, the conqueror comes not only as other conquerors have come with covetousness, ambition, pride, love of power. This conqueror comes in utter righteousness, in perfect holiness, in strict accord with every holy interest. And that's where it's going. This is where history is going. The king is coming, and he's coming to judge righteously. Further in the description, verse 12, look at it with me. In his eyes are flames of fire, and upon his head are many diadems. And he has a name written which no one knows but himself. He has eyes as a flame of fire, like a flame of fire. What is this? Well, nothing escapes his notice. He has penetrating eyes. His eyes pierce and they see everything. That too is said of him in Revelation 1.14. He has eyes like a flame of fire. It has to do with piercing, penetrating, as well as purifying gaze. He can see into the recesses of every human heart. He sees into the deepest part of your heart. His vision penetrates everything. In chapter 2, verse 18 of Revelation to the church at Thyatira, it says the Son of God has, again, eyes like a flame of fire. His eyes were once filled with tears as he looked on uh, Jerusalem and he wept over them. His eyes once filled with tears as he wept over Lazarus, his friend. But the day is coming when those eyes flash with fire, when they are penetrating, burning eyes, probing the deepest resources of every soul, purging and purifying with judgment. To judge rightly, right, he has to see everything. He has to see into the depths of every heart. He has to see behind every mask, behind every facade. It's the flaming vision of righteous, omniscience, omniscient anger. And then it says in verse 12, upon him, upon his head are many crowns, many diadems, many king's crowns. Look at it with me, verse 12. What is this? And this speaks to his royal rank and regal authority. Behind this is that he's collected all of the crowns, all of the authority. It is the ultimate symbol of sovereignty. All crowns go onto one head. They all become his. And verse 16 says, he is king of kings and Lord of lords. There is no other authority. There is no other king. There is no other sub-king. 
He has them all. It's an amazing picture. Further, it says about him, he has a name written upon him which no one knows but himself. And, you know, we don't really like that, right? We want to know uh, what is the name. We want to know, but this is something we don't know. Um, John, could see, John could see a name there, and either he couldn't see it fully or he couldn't comprehend it. doesn't say. It was unintelligible to him. He didn't know what it was. It was beyond human comprehension. It was beyond human knowledge. It was beyond human understanding. And listen, Redemption Hill Bible Church, this is very encouraging. With all that we know about Jesus Christ, we will not know the fullness of the mystery of his person. John couldn't know it. Oh, maybe, oh, maybe uh, there are things that we'll know in eternally, in eternally. Surely they, they, there are that we can't know now. But I'm quite confident that the full mystery of his being may never be known to us. Yes, we will know him as he is known to some degree, 1 Corinthians 13, 12. And that's wonderful to think about. But here, John is in an exalted vision taken to heaven, and there was a reality about Jesus that he couldn't comprehend. There is an incomprehensibility to the character of God that perhaps even eternally glorified humans may never know. Now, we'll know much more than we know now, but the full incomprehensibility of God will always be incomprehensible. And so all John is saying is there's something about him that is way beyond anything we can ever comprehend. That's wonderful to hear because I think we would all agree that sometimes we become overly familiar with Jesus. Uh, We can't overstate our comprehension uh, or, or we can overstate our comprehension and think we really know him better than we really do. There's a profound nature in the Lord Jesus Christ that is comprehensible only to God. Here comes the incomprehensible one, the sovereign one, the faithful one, the true one, the warrior king to do his judgment. And then in verse 13, look at it with me. Further describing the return, the ruler who returns, it says, he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And by the way, this is not the blood of the cross. This is not a picture of redemption, my friends. This is a picture of judgment. Jesus is coming with his blood splattered garment. And you might be saying, well, wait a minute. The, the, the war hasn't even started. He's coming with a blood spattered garment, but the battle hasn't started. Where did this blood come from? I want to hasten to remind you, this is not his first battle. This is his last battle. This is not the first battle. This is the last battle. He has worn his battle clothes before. He is 
to tread the winepress of the wrath of God, blood splattering in every direction in a holocaust of fearful judgment. And again, this may be a little shocking to you, but it is absolutely consistent with the Word of God, and we need to take it seriously. In 2 Thessalonians 1.7, it says this, The Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is coming in fury of judgment to stain His garments. And then it says at the end of verse 13, follow along, his name is called the Word of God. And I love this. His name is called the Word of God. Just in case there's any question about it, we know who the Word of God is, right? John 1, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made by him, and without him, was not anything made. The Word of God is none other than the second member of the Trinity, Christ, the incarnate one, who is also the Creator. He is the one with the blood on His garments. He is the warrior king. He comes in judgment. And so here again, this name is so majestic. Why does God choose to call Him the Word of God? follow me. This is so beautiful because he is the expression of God. He is the revelation of God. He is the declaration of God. He is the one in whom we hear God speak and we see God act. He is the full expression of the mind and the will and the purpose of God. That is Jesus Christ. He is God's word. Word represents that which is communicate communicated. He communicates God. You want to know what God is? We look to Christ because he is the word. So the sum of his names really is a glorious picture, isn't it? He has a name which no one knew, which expresses his deity. He has a name, the word of God, which expresses his incarnate deity. He has a name, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, which expresses his sovereign deity. Frankly, the gospel plan is in those three names. He is God. He is God who revealed himself to man and will someday again reign over the universe. The sum of the names then is the sum of the picture of the conqueror, the sum of the return of the conqueror. These last two we're going to do very quickly. Uh, secondly, in your outline are the armies of the king. Briefly, verse 14, look at it with me. In the armies of heaven, let's stop there. Now we've got some armies up there in heaven. Well, the astral question is, who are they? Well, for the sake of time, I'm going to tell you, um, they're all the saints of the Old Testament, all the saints of the church age, all the saints of the time of tribulation, all come blazing out of heaven with him. We see all the saints coming. Who is that? That's you and I if you are in Christ. We return with him. The white horses, again, are symbolic. Are we going to be riding on 
Uh, horses, no. Uh, no more than our Jesus. Is he going to return in, in dirty clothes? No, it's symbolic. I don't think Jesus actually returns in dirty clothes, but the symbolic, the symbolism of the great warrior in the triumphant moment is not hard for us to miss. So the regiments of heaven come with the conqueror, and that's who they are. They're all in their regiments, gathered in glory, gathered up in glory until that time. We say, what do the saints do? What are we going to do? We're going to return with Christ. What do we do? Well, follow this. We've come to reign. Come to reign with him. And you say, well, where's that, Dave? Well, there's many places, but right down 1 Corinthians 6, 2, Revelation chapter 20, has us sitting on thrones and reigning. And so once the kingdom is established, we rule and reign in the kingdom. So we see the return of the king, we see the armies of the king, and lastly, we see the rule of the king. And it's obvious, verses 15 and 16, look at it with me. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings, and Lord of Lords. The rule of the king is depicted in very graphic terms. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword. Again, it's a symbol of his slaying power. And John had seen that sword before. Again, back in chapter 1 and verse 16, it says, Out of his mouth coming a sharp two-edged sword. In that particular vision, that's Sword was, def was a defending sword to defend the church against the onslaught of Satan and his powers. You understand that the Lord defends his church. And to come up against uh, the true church is to come up against the Lord Jesus Christ and his slaying power. But here it is a sword of judgment. is the flaming sword of death. And it's the sword out of his mouth because he speaks and it's done. The whole thing is over in seconds, death-dealing power in his words. Where once he spoke comfort, he now speaks death. And though the saints, as I said, return with Christ to reign and rule, we are not the executioners. We are not those who carry out vengeance on the ungodly. That is his task. And the angels may help in the gathering process, but they... They are not the executioner. He alone treads the winepress. And John wrote, For this purpose the Son of Man was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. He carries the sword. He alone uses it. He alone treads the winepress. The angels assist in the mop-up, and we reign in the kingdom. Vengeance is mine, he says, I will repay. And uh, we could go there, we won't for the sake of time, back in Psalm 2. Psalm 2, it says that Messiah would come. He would break the nations with a rod of iron. What that means is instant, swift, righteous judgment will be the characteristic of the rule and the reign of Jesus Christ. When he comes, his judgment will be sure. It will be swift. It will be unyielding. 
absolute authority, immediate justice with severity. It's going to be a very different world than the one we live in today. Then John, uh, in closing, gives a further description of his judgment by saying, he will tread the winepress of the wrath of the fury of the Lord Almighty. Look at that yourself. Uh, verse 15. That, comments, that comment relates to his fury and his wrath. He crushes the grapes in his wrath, a very vivid symbol of judgment. In ancient times, uh, they would stomp on grapes. They would squish and squirt everywhere. And that kind of vivid bursting of the blood of people is the imagery here. It's, it's frightening, I understand. But it's true. And they would have understood it. We understood it. I talked to my son who's in Israel uh, on the way over, and he, he, we were talking about this. He said, Dad, there are still all kinds of wine vats everywhere. And people would, would stomp on the grapes, and they would burst and, and go everywhere. So it's, again, a symbol we understand. In the ancient times, they would stomp on them, and we understand. So he comes in fury, and he comes in judgment, and he tramples in an instant all the ungodly. Out of the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ comes the sentence and the execution, and this puts him in position to be king of kings and lord of lords with no competition. And then lastly, it says, John identifies him with a banner that, that sweeps across his chest down to his thigh. And it shows his ultimate sovereignty, the ultimate king, King Jesus. So all foes are vanished. And the slaughter is, is fearful, it's frightening, it's a terrible thing. But listen, this is what we need to warn people. Mercy abused and grace spurned reaches its point. And when he comes, he's coming in judgment. When he came the first time, they would have perverted a, a murderer over him and they killed him, killing the prince of life, the book of Acts says. They openly blaspheme God. They become more and more wicked as time goes on. This is the society we live on. We live in a time where Christ is, is uh, metaphorically spit on, rejected. The blood of the cross is trampled on. They openly blaspheme God, but finally in the end, their wickedness reaches an in, uh, a, uh, unredeemable proportions and the executioner comes back to execute. The picture is clear and unmistakable. And I want to close by just reminding you of something. If you are in Christ this morning, there is no condemnation. You have nothing to fear. You have been redeemed. Uh, last week, uh, we celebrated the resurrection of Jesus Christ, his victory over death, uh, our redemption. This morning, uh, I hate to be the one to bring the bad news, but he's coming. If you are not in Christ, let me, out of love, compel you today to come to Christ. Turn from your sin while there's still time. That, that's really uh, the point of, of, of this sermon from my own heart is not to try to shock you with shock and awe. I'm just trying to tell you what the Bible really says. And the day of judgment is coming. 
And if you are in Christ, we long for the rapture. Either you're going to die and be with Christ or he's going to come and get you. But I plead with anyone in this sanctuary who has not come to Christ, come while there's still time. Because Jesus Christ will either be your Savior or He will be your judge and executioner. And I pray that you would come to Christ. He would be your Savior. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank You for Your Word, which is so powerful, so vivid. And Lord, I confess this is a terrifying passage it's a terrifying passage for me even to preach but it's the truth and so much of scripture is focused on your coming your coming as king and you will right every wrong and because you are perfectly righteous and holy you must and you will deal with sin and you will bring fiery judgment not out-of-control, unemotional judgment, but only what is right and true. So I pray, Lord, that if there is anyone here today who is not in Christ, that today would be the day that while there's still time, they would come to Christ. And Lord, for those of us who are in Christ May it be a powerful reminder to stimulate us to evangelize everyone in our life, to warn them, just as it was in Noah's day, and they scoffed at him. But may we be those, may we be a church who is a beacon of warning that, yes, this same Jesus who came to save is going to return to judge. And it's a fearful thing, as it says in Hebrews, to fall into the hands of a living God. So we pray, Lord, that that would be the case, uh, that you would be glorified and honored through this passage, through the teaching of your word. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.